Thank you, Daniel, Joe. Uh, good evening. The scripture reading this evening comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. It can be found in page 837 in your black Bibles. Hear God's word to you this evening. He went out again beside the sea, this is Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. We've been going through this series of sermons through the Gospel of Mark. And right in the beginning of his narrative, we are introduced to Jesus. The most famous person to have ever lived, the most quoted, um, the most looked up to, the one responsible for starting and beginning this worldwide movement of followers. And he begins and starts his ministry by preaching or stating or saying the following. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. With these simple yet profound words, he identifies himself as well as his mission and his purpose for being in this world. The good news which Jesus announced and proclaimed was the arrival of what he called the kingdom of God. And everything that it entails, the kingdom has arrived in and through Jesus. The longings, hopes, desires, and dreams of millions of people who had come before had finally achieved and reached their climax and fulfillment. But why is that good news? And what is the nature of this kingdom? What does it look like? Who is this king anyway? And what does that mean for us? Well, those are the questions that the gospel in general and the gospel of Mark in particular were written to answer. Now, this text we just read is written to answer a more particular set of questions. Uh, what is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? Who belongs in it? And who gets to decide? And so that's what we'll look at this morning. First, the nature of the kingdom. Uh, second, the makeup of the kingdom. And third, the authority of the kingdom. So the nature, the makeup, and the authority. First, the nature of the kingdom. Now our story begins with a call. I'll read it to you again, verses 13 and 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea. Now notice that because we'll come back to it. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Jesus calls Levi to follow 
him. Now it's important for you to know and understand that Levi was a guy that nobody wanted. Why? Well, Levi was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors have never been popular. It's rarely an occasion where a call from an IRS agent is something that you look forward to. Uh, but in early Israel, in the first century, uh, they were the most hated men in town. See, Israel was occupied, governed, and taxed by Rome. Now, the Jews, of course, were a very proud and independent people. They hated the occupation, and they resented the taxes that they were forced to pay. But what made it worse was how it was done. So the Roman government collected taxes through a system called tax farming. So basically what would happen is that they assessed a district a certain amount. For example, we're going to need a million bucks from the heights, right? And then they sold the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. Now, the winner of the bid had to turn over those million dollars at the end of the year, but they could keep whatever they collected beyond that. So, if he collected a million and a half, he pocketed the extra half million, right? Needless to say, tax collectors got extremely rich, dishonestly. Now, on top of that, Rome used Jewish citizens to collect taxes from their Countrymen, their own people, their own blood, their own nation. And as if that weren't enough, tax collectors were also considered religiously unclean due to their contact with Gentiles and therefore forbidden from attending worship services. So tax collectors were hated because A, he was a traitor, who was collaborating with the Roman oppressors. B, he was getting rich from this collaboration by fleecing his own countrymen. And C, he was religiously ostracized and excluded. This is who Levi was. Nobody wanted Levi. And Jesus called Levi to follow, to join his team. A team, by the way, made up of fishermen up to this point. Now, why is that important? Well, because the text says, I mentioned to you earlier, that the tax booth was by the sea. In this case, it was by the Sea of Galilee. We know then that Levi's main source of income of uh, collecting taxes was most likely probably fishermen. In fact, Levi may have known some of Jesus' other recent followers, like Peter and Andrew and James and John, what do you think they thought of Jesus calling this guy? Are you kidding me, Jesus? This guy, out of all the ones you could have called, all the ones you could have chosen, you're choosing the guy who's been stealing from us, who's been robbing us from our sense of livelihood, our incomes. Levi was the guy nobody wanted except Jesus. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I, I see where you're headed with this, but that's not me, right? I'm a successful business person. Well, so was Levi. He was very successful. He made a lot of money. He had a huge house. In fact, he could afford big dinner parties, as we'll see in a moment. Or maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I'm educated. I, I'm intelligent. This doesn't really apply to me. But so was Levi. 
In fact, you couldn't win the bid for a tax district without being educated, maybe even multilingual. Levi was a sharp guy, and that's clear from the well-organized, well-written gospel that he later went on to author, the Gospel of Matthew. All right, Levi Matthew, same guy. So when I say Levi was a guy that nobody wanted, I'm not suggesting or saying that he wasn't bright or educated or successful. He was all of those things and more. But his chosen profession made him unwanted, but Jesus chose him anyway. So here is the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Radically inclusive to the ones that you and I think are impossible. To the people that we think are so messed up that they are beyond hopeless. Jesus chose a man that nobody wanted and he invited him in. Second, the makeup of the kingdom. Notice what happens when Levi encounters Jesus. The Gospel of Luke actually also tells this story and puts it this way. Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and sinners reclining at table with them. Levi is so excited about following Jesus that he wants all of his friends to meet Jesus too. And guess who a tax collector's friends are? Other tax collectors. Right? And so he throws this big dinner party at his house. Verse 15 says that many tax collectors and sinners showed up for the party. And Jesus is there with his guys. And they're all eating together, mixing it up, hanging out. Jesus with sinners and tax collectors. Now the religious leaders were upset and asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the New Living Translation gives us a much more relevant translation. Why does he eat with such scum? Or the message, what kind of example is this acting cozy with the riffraff? See, they would never eat, interact with such people. Contact with irreligious people like these would be considered contamination. You might as well touch and pet a cockroach. I've already explained about the tax collectors, but who were these other sinners that the text mentions here? Well, some of these sinners had done real moral wrong. Uh, Theft, adultery, lying. But there were others whose sin was not observing every religious tradition and regulation. So you could be a sinner in this sense, but still be a good moral person. You could be a good person, but not a church goer. Now, strict religious Jews, like these Pharisees, were to have no interaction, no fellowship with these kinds of people. They weren't to walk with them, do business with them, and most importantly, they were not to have them over in their home. In fact, the very word Pharisee means separated one, someone who separates from others. So by eating with these sinners, Jesus is violating the orthodox conventions of his day. And the Pharisees' question is why? Why is he doing this? And Jesus' answer was, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Why did Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners, with scum and and the riffraff? Because they needed him. Because they were sick and he is the doctor. Because they were sinners and he is the savior. And the Pharisees couldn't believe it. Jesus, you're preaching to us that the kingdom of God is, is here. That you're somehow ushering it in. But you're also showing us and telling us that your kingdom is made up of these sinners and, and these tax collectors. These people. You're telling us that not only are they allowed in but that you're actively inviting them in? Now here's the deal. None of us want to be Pharisees, right? But sometimes we are without ever intending to be. When we become Christians in our desire to be holy, and to be godly, all really, really good things, we naturally seek out people like us. So more and more, our circle of friends becomes exclusively Christian. We go to church with Christians. We begin to golf with Christians. We eat dinner with Christians. We take our Christian dogs and cats to Christian vets. We end up isolated and insulated from the very people that Jesus came to help. In fact, there's been research and studies done around this. Did you know that only two years after conversion... After a person becomes a Christian, many people have no significant friendships or relationships with non-Christians. See, it's very easy to become a Pharisee, a separatist. But that's not what our leader did. In fact, Jesus, the holiest person to have ever lived, lived such a holy life that sinners were attracted to him. Think about that. Sinners were attracted to Jesus' holiness. And at this party at Levi's house, Jesus got to speak to a crowd who would never enter the doors of a synagogue. The the tax collectors were excommunicated, so they couldn't go. The sinners were irreligious, so they wouldn't go. So Jesus goes to where they were, at Levi's party. So here's the makeup of Jesus' kingdom. The lost, the least, the last, and the lonely. Outsiders and ostracized, marginalized and disenfranchised, all of them are welcome and invited into the kingdom. Third, The authority of the kingdom. So, so far we've seen the nature and the makeup of Jesus' kingdom. It is radically inclusive and the outsider and marginalized are all invited and welcomed in. But of course the Pharisees have a really good question and they make a valid point. Why? Now you know what they were really asking, don't you? How dare you, Jesus... Who are you to say that these people are invited in? Who gave you that kind of authority? And Jesus' answer to their question is, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now what exactly is he saying here? Is he telling the Pharisees, hey listen, you're righteous, you don't need me, they need me? No. 
He's warning them that the self-righteous often miss the kingdom. That those who think they are well won't go to the doctor. That those who think they are good enough on their own won't go to Jesus. If you think you're already righteous, you have no need for a savior. And so you won't come to Jesus. What an incredible thing for Jesus to say. Because what we see here is that the kingdom is both radically inclusive, but also radically exclusive. It's radically inclusive in that you don't need anything to be invited in. But it's radically exclusive in that you only need Jesus to be invited in. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because we don't want to give up everything for Jesus. Notice Jesus has started calling people to follow him. And for every single one, that has meant leaving something behind. We saw a couple of weeks ago Peter and Andrew leaving behind their nets. We're seeing here Levi leaving behind his toll booth. See, following Jesus is much more radical than anyone has ever imagined. It's not about fixing something or adjusting small areas of our lives. It's about submitting each and every area of our lives to his domain, rule, and reign. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell and warn the Pharisees. You won't get me. You won't understand my message. You'll miss the kingdom if you think you're already righteous. But the sinners, those who know they are broken, those who know they have nothing to hide, those who know they have nothing to give, those are the ones I'm here for. See, Jesus is hard on the self-righteous, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. He's hard on them because he knows that our self-righteousness will keep us from ever coming to him. Do you know why Jesus told the famous parable of the prodigal son? I mentioned this last time I preached. The Pharisees were complaining that Jesus was hanging around sinners way too much. Much like he was doing here at Levi's party. And so he told the story for the Pharisees to show them that there is more than one way to be lost. You can be lost in a foreign country or you can be lost here at home. You can be lost in sin or you can be lost in self-righteousness. You can be lost in church. See, both sons were alienated from their father, one by his rebellion, the other by his goodness. The older brother believed that the father owed him because he had been so good. And the sad part of that story is that it ends unresolved. With the older, self-righteous, angry son still outside the party. It is so dangerous to be good and religious. We get so good that we forget we still need Jesus. Do you want to know a good litmus test uh, to figure out if you're a Pharisee, in case you're wondering? How many tax collectors and sinners are part of your life? How many outsiders hang around you and like you? Not agree with you or believe everything you do, but actually enjoy spending time around you. 
Here's the good news. Jesus said, I have come to call sinners. And we all qualify. He came to call me. And he came to call you. And the result, as a result of breaking the boundaries of conventional piety, Jesus will go on in future chapters to be censured by the Pharisees and eventually crucified on a cross. Why? For including sinners like you and me in his kingdom. See, here is, here's the real turn of this story, the most interesting part of the story is that we are only connected to Jesus because he invited us in first. Because Jesus lived this radically inclusive life, we are now called sons and daughters of God. Because Jesus took our place when we deserve to die for our sins and be eternally separated from the Father, we can now live lives of joy and freedom and peace. See, we deserve to be excluded We deserve to be outsiders. We deserve to be marginalized. But Jesus did it perfectly for us in our place. He invited everyone and paid the ultimate price for this radical inclusivity. But through his death, he opened the path to God for everyone to join his mission of universal healing. And because he has done it, we can also follow him on his mission of radical inclusivity. Why are we often afraid or apathetic about including others? Could it be that we have forgotten how Jesus included us? We don't have to be afraid of what other people think or of rejection or of not knowing what to say or do. We can rest in the confidence that Jesus is king and has everything under his control. We can also live passionate lives full of meaning and purpose, not stuck in this endless rut of monotony. We can live our lives passionately in our homes, in our work, and in our city. This is Good news. Fourth and last, I'll add one more point. Uh, Living in the kingdom. Jesus' message was the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Why is the arrival of Jesus' kingdom, of the kingdom of God, good news? Because It's the announcement that outsiders and marginalized are included. And now we, the church, are the missionaries who are sent to reveal the kingdom of God, including its radical inclusivity. We are the ones who have been sent. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. You have been sent. You are empowered. You are commissioned. You are the missionary sent to reveal the kingdom of God to the mission fields in which he has placed you. The places where you live, where you work, and where you play. Now, this text also shows us how we are sent. We're sent first missionally, and we are sent incarnationally. What do I mean by those terms? First, we are sent missionally. Jesus hung around all kinds of different people, 
We are also called to go. So ask yourself, who are the tax collectors in my life? Who are the sinners at my work? Who are the outcasts in my social groups? Now, in our city, this could mean we're willing to include those who act and believe differently than we do, especially those that religion considers the untouchables, those in the LGBT community, the formerly incarcerated, the sexually broken, those of other religions. It could also mean that I'm going to intentionally spend time with non-Christians or to include non-Christians in my parties or to invite non-Christians over for dinner. It could mean that instead of having our Bible studies in our homes, we're going to have them in a coffee shop or a bar or at a park or in some other public place because that is where non-Christians hang out and that's where the messiness of life exists. Second, we are sent incarnationally. That's from the term, the incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus identifies with these people deeply. He enters their world fully and understands their heart language. So ask yourself, do I identify with the people I interact with in the places where I live, work, and play? Have I listened to their stories? Do I really know them? Have I interacted with them long enough that they know that I actually care about them? This means we might have to learn some destructive theology. Like that God only hangs out in certain places or that he only cares about redeeming certain people. It might also mean we might have to unlearn some unhealthy habits and behaviors like only hanging out with, not, with Christians or living busy, hurried lives. It might mean we don't always set end times for social gatherings and events because life and community can't be rushed. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean adding one more thing to your agenda. It's simply being intentional in the places where the Lord has sent us to. Being intentional. Now, let me describe for you uh, what this double posture of, of living missionally and incarnationally looks like for uh, my family and I. Maybe to spark your imagination and give you a few different ideas. Uh, as uh, Taylor mentioned and uh, prayed earlier, uh, I joined uh, this soccer league that meets here in our fields every Wednesday evening. And yes, I come to play and hang out. But I'm also intentional about connecting with people, especially non-Christians. Now, my family always eats dinner afterwards. And we make it a point to eat somewhere near so that we can invite anyone who wants to come hang out with us. I'm not changing my plans or adding anything to my agenda. I'm simply being intentional. And it's led and opened doors to some incredible conversations about Christianity and our beliefs. Now, Timothy, my uh, five-year-old son, was in Little League this past season. I didn't grow up uh, playing baseball, but I wanted to be intentional in that space, believing that the Lord had sent me there. So, it meant that when I was asked to be assistant coach, I said yes, even though I had no idea what I was doing. 
but it was a great way to meet people. It also meant that whenever we were invited out to lunch or dinner, we would go. Or after a game, when everyone was trying to decide where to go eat or if anyone could host an event or a gathering, we always said yes. We simply wanted to be intentional. Now, Nancy and I go to vacation uh, every year. And the last several trips, we've invited uh, some folks along, including some non-Christians. And we've had some great conversations. They've been able to see us interacting with each other, with our kids sometimes. And they've been able to ask us questions about our marriage and our kids and church and spirituality. And it's opened a path for then several of them to be welcomed into our home and open the door to continue to build our relationships. We're simply trying to be intentional. As another way to uh, try to find a space or a place to invest time in and, and get to know people, I've been visiting this bar in my neighborhood for the last year. I've gotten to know all the bartenders. Uh, one of them calls me his priest. And I've invited Christian friends along. I always make it a point to sit at the bar where the bartenders are able to hear our conversations about hope or faith or sports or the weekend or a conference or church. And it's led to some great follow-up with many of them inquiring to know more about hope or about something we were talking about, seeking to understand more about what we believe. We're simply being intentional. I'll mention one more thing as an aside because somebody asked this of me during one of the services asking about what about us introverts, right? Uh, so first of all, God wired you that way and his call is still to make disciples. It doesn't change. Uh, second of all, I'm an introvert too, believe it or not. Um, and so uh, a couple of things maybe to uh, spark if you know you're going to be spending some time with people for an hour or two at some party or some event, why not uh, spend some introvert time, I call it my introversion time, beforehand and afterwards. Just block it out on your calendar two hours before and two hours later. That way, during that party or dinner or whatever, uh, you actually have time to invest and talk to people knowing that you've come rested and then you're going to go rest afterward. Uh, another thing, if I can recommend a resource, this is a great book called Introverts in the Church. It's actually written by a pastor who's an introvert who gives some great ideas, uh, some great tools and helpful resources for thinking about how do you engage with people as an introvert. So, here's three challenges uh, for you this week or the next couple of weeks or the next month. First, I want you to answer these two questions. Where has the Lord sent me to? And to whom has the Lord sent me to? Where has the Lord sent me to? What are the places where I live, work, and play? Where I believe he's called me and sent me to? And to whom has he sent me to? We usually have about five or ten different people I've, I've come to realize in talking to others that we can engage with, that God opens the doors with, their hearts. Uh, Luke 10 calls them people of peace. Um, usually five or ten of them. Answer those two questions. Now, how many of you know someone who would probably not walk through the doors of this building but would go to a party at your house? 
So here's the third challenge to you. Throw a Levi party this month. After you've answered those two questions, throw a party, invite Levi's, and live a radically inclusive life for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift and opportunity to be called your children. That indeed, as we sang earlier, when we were slaves to sin, when we were foreigners excluded from the covenant of grace, indeed, when we were your enemies, as scripture reminds us, you sent your son to die for us, to live the perfect life that we should have lived and to die the perfect death that we did not die. And because of Jesus' radical inclusivity, we are now included as co-heirs to the riches of the kingdom of heaven. Yet, Father, with this great joy, uh, with being chosen comes great responsibility because we are chosen to be a blessing for the sake of the world. So, Father, I do pray that these coming days and weeks, as we interact with those that you have sent us to and the places to which you have sent us to, would you keep our eyes open our ears ready to listen, our minds alert to the many ways that your spirit is working in people all around us. Father, the harvest is plentiful. Would you give us the confidence, the courage, and the boldness to know that the spirit of God is with us. Open doors even this week, I pray, and give us the boldness to speak with confidence. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.